There is an aspect of COVID-19 that is emerging, which is experienced by some of those who have contracted the disease. Its symptoms can include kidney injury, memory problems, emotional and mental health challenges, to leg swelling. The range of symptoms can be present while the person tests negative for the virus. Although the syndrome does not affect everyone, for those it does, they are still affected four to six months after recovering from the disease. They are called COVID long haulers. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. For the last months, we have seen Americans coming off ventilators and leaving hospitals in wheelchairs. Now we are learning more of what is happening with some of them following their treatments for COVID-19. With the number of Americans contracting the disease still increasing, the number of those becoming COVID long haulers will increase as well. With us again is Kaiser Permanente Virologist and Infectious Disease Expert, Dr. Amy Ducrow. The fact that the testing may not be done at the time of symptoms can confound really our our better understanding of how many people are affected, what exactly is the likelihood of this happening. One thing we do that has been recognized is no matter the severity of illness, so whether you were hospitalized in the ICU on a ventilator or had uh, infection and you were in the community setting, it doesn't really seem to correlate whether or not you're going to have COVID long-term symptoms. So I do think that the testing makes things a little bit more difficult. We know that tests can stay positive for several months, but then if someone maybe earlier in the condition, earlier in the pandemic, when our testing supplies across the nation were so limited, people may not have been tested, but yet they're suffering with some long-standing or chronic effects that they, they can't really name or put together otherwise. So the entire process makes it very difficult to put a finger on what we are, what we are experiencing and what to expect from having had infection. For someone who was recovering from the infection itself, do these symptoms kick in as soon as the virus clears our bodies or it's over or is there a delay? Maybe we're released from the hospital. We're feeling okay. And, a week or so later, a week or so later, these things start to start to kick in, and so we're really confused as to if it's related to the infectious disease or something we may have had before. People's experiences are so different. Not yeah. only managing infection, but also these complications or these long-term effects. So it, there's really no uniform experience of here's what you would expect. Now we know with the biology of the virus. If you are exposed, the incubation period or the time until you would develop symptoms is 2 to 14 days. But then from there, whether you get infection, infected uh, or whether you develop symptoms, how sick you get, whether you will have these long-term effects and when they will occur is really mm-hmm. quite variable. So it's hard to say or advise people, here's what to expect, which, of course, uncertainty then increases a lot of our anxiety as well. Can those who have it do a, do we need to let them know on the air here? You all do a better job of reporting to your doctor so the rest of us can figure out what's going on. Right. Yeah, you're right that there are so many different experiences. And just like with anything in medicine, there's, you know, what we call a bell-shaped curve. So most people will not experience long-term symptoms. 
But then some will have symptoms that are mild. Some will have symptoms that are more significant. Some will have them for shorter. Some will have them for longer. So I would encourage anyone who's concerned about their health to always be in touch with your doctor. And then the doctor or healthcare provider may be able to get you in touch with more information. You know, for example, with the vaccine, the CDC has done a great job of developing this V-Safe program where after you get vaccinated, you scan something on your phone, on your smartphone, and you can report every day, what are my symptoms? Well, that's a really organized way of preceding, yes, preceding the um, anticipating what side effects or what collecting a large amount of data from all of the captive audience about how are you doing post-vaccine so we can learn so much from that. We don't have that sort of a setup right now for people who have had infection. So it does rely on the reporting from people to their providers about I'm experiencing this or I'm not experiencing this and I'm doing fine. So I think that that conversation is ongoing. And as you said, so much to learn about this infection. Uh, One of the things you mentioned earlier was about organs and uh, the effect to organs. Um, I've been understanding these uh, uh, post-COVID has been falling into two groups, those who have just limited um, limited disability symptoms and they may go away and those who may be suffering some permanent damage. Are we sure or pretty, uh, or, or is this thing we're still researching too regarding the permanent damage aspects to, to lungs, to heart, to kidneys, that kind of thing? That's still an emerging practice then to figure out what's going on on the long term there? The long term effects that may impact impact or have a more significant impact on our organs or um, our, the functioning of our bodies is really something to be continued that needs continued study. What I would say yeah. is that that does appear to me much less common than some mm-hmm. of the more generalized symptoms that people may experience. But as, as has been throughout, we have a lot to learn about what, what to expect but I would say that that is a much less likely outcome uh, than what we expect from either no symptoms at all or having the more um, general, which can be very disruptive as well. So it's all important, yeah. but it's just information to be learned. We see the, the television news reports and we see people being rolled out of the hospital and everybody cheering and saying, yay, they got over it. And there's no follow-up after that to see what happens. And then we find Mm -hmm. out about the post-COVID effects there and like, oh, wait a minute, we're not done with this yet. Well, what's interesting is that even if we had 10% of people who had COVID had long-term effects, uh, which from our current understanding may be a little bit on the lower side of what's being reported, even if we only had 10%, because of the sheer volume of people who have experienced COVID in our nation, that still amounts to a large number of people. So it's something that as a public health system and as a medical response care delivery system, we will want to have some answers for and some support for those people who are experiencing these long-term effects. Yeah, and this is probably another another element of information people need to know to encourage them to wear masks, distance, and do all those things so they don't contract in the first place. That's exactly right. So the best way to avoid having any long-term side effects from COVID is to avoid COVID in the first place. 
we know what works to do this. And so whether you've been vaccinated or not, the recommendations are still the same to continue to monitor, uh, practice social distancing or physical distancing, wearing the masks, washing hands frequently, avoiding large gatherings. Those are the things that we know work to prevent COVID exposure and infection. And therefore, that's how we can avoid the long-term effects as well. Uh, what type of concerns do we really have to have from these emerging mutations of COVID-19? There's about uh, three vaccine or variant strains that are appear to be gaining uh, traction in various parts oh. of the world. And really, this is not so different from what we would expect from normal viral behavior as it circulates throughout a community. We know that viruses evolve and mutate just as a process of their normal course. So we wouldn't necessarily be surprised that there would be strains that have adapted or mutated to some degree. That alone is not uh, not shocking for, for viral behavior. But what we want to make sure is that we better understand with those strains, how does that impact transmission? Right now, we think that these viral strains that are variant strains do transmit more readily than the more common or the, the initial strain. And that also is not shocking because when there's a genetic advantage or when there's a mutation that allows it to say, oh, I'm adapting, I'm going to increase my strength to be able to transmit more readily, uh, that, that would not be in, entirely surprising. What we do also understand thus far about these variant strains is that they don't seem to be causing more severe disease, and they also appear to be susceptible to the vaccines that are available. So right. we want to encourage vaccination as a part, as a component of prevention and the strategy of eliminating or um, getting through this pandemic. And the other parts are those prevention, public health prevention measures that we were discussing. Yeah, the reason why I bring that up is that some, some of the reporting on it is there's a new strain from the UK. It's more infectious than the current strain, but don't worry about it. It's not going to bother you as much. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I said, oh, wait a minute, don't, don't, let's not give people a false sense of security here the same way people that are taking the vaccine now and running out saying, oh, I got the vaccine. I'm good. Well, yes. I think if I get it right, it takes about two to three weeks before the body to manufacture enough antibodies for them to be right. good. And you can still contract the virus during that time. Right. We, we definitely don't want anyone to be flippant about exercising these prevention measures because no matter which strain you're dealing with, these are yeah. not, we don't want people to become infected. So we want them to do those prevention measures of the distancing, masks, hand hygiene. We have to have that. And then the vaccine is one add to that. It does require that a lot of people, I mean, we're going to need to develop herd immunity or immunity within a, a community. We are going to need a large number of people vaccinated. So the vaccine is an important aspect to controlling the pandemic. But it's not this sort of thing where we get a pill or a shot and we're good and the whole thing's over. We have to continue to be diligent and be very attentive to making sure we are not contributing to the problem. Because whether you've been vaccinated or not, you still need to be taking those precautions to help reduce the spread of disease, 
vaccinated people, it's possible that they may still carry and transmit the virus to others. So we have to make sure that even those vaccinated people uh, are taking those precautions. Uh, Yes. What do you have for those people? I think 30 to 40 percent of of the public is saying, I don't want the vaccine at all. Now, if the rest of us get the vaccine and they don't have it, they can still contract and there's still pressure on the health care system and those types of things to try to take care of them. And if we're not sure how long our immunity is going to last once we have the shot, these people are walking around or they can totally reinfect us again. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there something else we need to say to them to say, hey, listen, you need to get the shot not only for yourself, but for the rest of us and maybe other people in your family that you're not even thinking of? Yes, absolutely. This has always been a big problem. There's even outside of COVID, there's a lot of distrust or skepticism around vaccines that we as a public health and infectious diseases community would really like to help break that down so that we can encourage vaccines, which we know are safe and effective. The state of Colorado actually is launching now a uh, vaccine facts campaign that will help Coloradans, especially those who may be in communities where there are, they are more likely to have vaccine uh, mistrust. That breaking down those misconceptions so that we can encourage people, everyone to get vaccinated. And Adam, as you mentioned, we have to have a large number of people vaccinated for this to be successful. So this state campaign, which I'm sure we'll be hearing about in the next week or so, uh, will help us to communicate information, tell people where they can receive trusted information and encourage Coloradans to get vaccinated when it's their opportunity to, to do so. Well, that's, that's, that's great there. Let me ask you one final thing about youth. Those youth who may contract COVID, can, uh, can they become long haulers? I don't think we know enough yet about who's affected and why to know that anyone may not experience long haul symptoms or chronic symptoms. Mm-hmm. It is possible that anyone who's infected may have, but just as we learned early in the pandemic, who's more likely to get disease, who's higher risk, we will probably also in the coming months and year learn more about who's more likely to be reporting these symptoms that are long, longer lasting. Those persons becoming COVID-19 long haulers will be increasing as more of the population successfully survives virus contraction. It's another real reason to mask up and keep your distance even after receiving your vaccine so you won't contract the virus in the first place. Many thanks to Kaiser Permanente virologist Dr. Amy Ducro for sharing her insight with us again for this edition. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay in your game. Mask up and keep your distance when going out. And many thanks to you, too, for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.